want to start off this morning by asking you if you are familiar with what an autoimmune disease is. Of course you are. You're a very smart bunch of people. Let's pull up that first slide, please. And so normally, the way that your immune system works is that it guards against germs, such as bacteria or viruses that invade your body, and it's able to differentiate between harmful cells and its own cells, so that when it senses a foreign invader, it sends army fighter cells to attack them. But then, of course, in autoimmune disease, your system mistakes parts of its own body, like joint or skin or blood cells, it mistakes it for an enemy, <coughs> Excuse me, releasing autoantibodies to attack healthy cells. That can lead to health complications and even devastation in your life. Now, just as dangerous is when we experience spiritual autoimmune disease afflicting the body of Christ, the church. When we see other people, other parts of the body, other cells within the body as enemy and try to destroy them. You say, that doesn't happen. But what I have experienced as your pastor over the past two years is that life has been a pressure cooker, especially for those who are trapped at home with their families. It wasn't a vacation. It was an intense pressure cooker that revealed all the things that, that we keep hidden or kind of are able to gloss over when we have eight hours a day apart from each other at work or at school. And so I've seen it tear apart marriages and friendships, ministries and families. And so the questions we're answering this morning is, how does that happen and how do we prevent it? And so if you have a Bible, turn in it to Nehemiah chapter 5. We're in this series called Restore, how we experience restoration by returning to God to rebuild what is broken. And not simply replacing things, but when God builds it, he builds something new. He builds something better, both the walls of Jerusalem and what we see in the gospel. And so in chapters 1 through 4, God gave Nehemiah this conviction for a suffering city in need of a savior. And with prayer, planning, and preparation, he moves from aspiration to implementation, casting a vision for the people of God to work at rebuilding the physical and spiritual walls of their families and communities together and learning to respond, we saw in the last chapter, to external threats, both prayerfully and practically. But the question we're answering today is, what do we do when the threats to the forward progress of the gospel the glory of God, the good of people is not something out there, but in here, within the family of Christ. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So what we see happening here in verses 1 and 2 is that the people of God, they've been hard at work rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and now there's this tremendous outcry from particularly the working class Jewish people, and they're complaining, we have these big families and we need food. And the problem, you may remember in chapter 4, is that 
Uh, all the people who are farmers, they're not busy raising crops because they were working on the wall and Nehemiah commanded them or invited them to stay in Jerusalem to build the walls and to defend the city from the surrounding enemies. Do you remember? And so that means they're not back at home in their farms. And in fact, most of them cannot return to their farms because enemies have surrounded uh, the neighboring region. And now we see in verse 3 that this region is hit by famine and scarcity. And so those who are less resourced, they're forced to borrow money from their wealthier Jewish brothers in, in, the, in the family of God, and they borrow the money against their farms and their homes as collateral in order for them to buy food. And in verse 4, to also pay a very high Persian Empire imperial property tax. So just like in our day, they also had to pay a property tax, but to the empire. And so the complaint that happens in verse 5 is that aren't we and our children the same flesh and family of God as our more prosperous Jewish brothers? And yet, they're trafficking our sons and daughters as temporary slaves for the money that we owe. And since we had to sign over our fields and our farms, there's no way for us to make money. We can't get ourselves and our kids out of debt because we don't have anything to work with. And so what we see here is in the midst of an economic collapse and crisis, this is a classic case of the rich getting richer while the poor get poorer. And the, the poor are trapped in a cycle that they cannot escape. And we still see that happening even today. During the pandemic, uh, many of us, we're trying to encourage ourselves and each other by thinking we're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. But the reality that we've learned over these past two years is that we're all in the same storm, but we're not in the same boat. That families with less financial reserves or less jobs that are secure, uh, they have uh, uh, smaller boats. And those of us who have better financial reserves and better jobs that are secure have a much bigger boat to weather the storm. And so even though we've seen a freeze in evictions over the last two years, even though Hayward is considered uh, much more affordable uh, in the Bay Area than many cities and towns. What we've seen happening is that many under-resourced families are forced to move out of this city or end up homeless. Meanwhile, those of us with more oftentimes will seize the opportunity to invest and buy up those houses that are being released on the market from poorer families, driving up the prices even further. So that to make it more out of reach of those who are poor. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. It is not wrong to make money. It's not wrong to provide for your family. It's not wrong to have nice things. Many of us mistake the, mistakenly think the Bible says that, that money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. Money is just a tool. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And so you like to eat, then you need money, right? And so money is a tool that's useful. But the Bible instructs us in many things with money, to earn it, to save it, to invest it, even to enjoy it, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and to give generously. But the question is, are we gaining it wickedly? And so what we see happening here in Nehemiah 5, as well as in our world today, is that in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, when troubles come, people become convinced that it's every man, woman, or family for itself. We see that, right? In this passage, in our lives today, whether it's grain, toilet paper two years ago, real estate right now, that there is a limited pie. We start seeing the world and life as a limited pie. And so you and I, we better gobble up the biggest piece we can while we can, even at the detriment of others, even if someone else is left empty-handed. 
That's the world's way of dealing with stress and troubles. But we worship a God who doesn't just own one pie. He owns all the pies. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it all belongs to him. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33, Jesus promises to provide for all of his followers' needs if we'll seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, including being generous because he owns it all and he is a very generous God. And so the problem for people back then and for us today is that we get swept up in this worldly mentality. And so here's the problem. It's when situations of stress and struggle come, they expose our sinful self-interest at the expense of other people. You see, we get caught up prioritizing my own comfort, my own security. Even if, even if we uh, see other people in our own church or our own home, we start to see them as competitor or as enemy instead of family during stressful moments, and it threatens the unity of the body of Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. And what I want you to see in this passage is that it's not that stress causes us to become self-interested at the expense of others. It reveals it. It exposes it. It was already there to begin with. And so let's examine our own hearts for a minute. When your finances or your future are uncertain or threatened, you tend to be more of a giver or a taker. And don't get, get me wrong. I'm not saying that you should just give away everything to serve every need because uh, many of us, uh, we, we give what we do not have or we give what is not ours, and the Bible calls that folly, right? But would people look at your life, at your financial choices, and say that you love money and use people to the glory of self or that you love people and use money to the glory of God? If people were to really look at your choices financially, and what I want you to understand is this passage, this story, is not just about money and stuff. It also affects how we look at relationships because it's revealing how our self-interest at the expense of others gets revealed under moments of stress. So when you are agitated and frustrated, you ever start to see a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, a spouse or a parent as enemy instead of family? And then... What happens is, just like the people in this passage, we start to protect ourselves and protect our self-interest with our demands or with our anger because that person owes you for hurting you in some way. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, Jesus tells us that we tend to hold others' sin against them as a debt and that we put them in a prison of our anger and our unforgiveness and that it's wickedness. He calls that a wicked servant. And so my question for you is, in difficulties and duress, in your marriage, in your family, in your ministry, who are you holding in debt or enslaved today? So how does Nehemiah respond to this? Let's pick up in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nation, but, ev but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold back to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. 
So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? So let's stop right there for a moment. Verse 6, Nehemiah, he is livid. And it's not that kind of sinful anger that you and I often get into. This is, he's not, it's, it's this kind of righteous rage on behalf of God and his suffering children against injustice. And so in verse 7, he's wise enough to go cool off instead of reacting emotion, emotionally or irrationally. So he goes off to a quiet place by himself to plan and pray. And then God moves his conviction into a confrontation with these people of influence and affluence in the community. He says, you're exacting unreasonable, ungodly interest rates from our own brothers in the family of God. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? In the Old Testament law, it does not forbid loaning money to people. In fact, we're going to see that Nehemiah actually practices that. He loans money to people in verse 10. Also, in Old Testament law, you were allowed to, uh, it was also allowed for an Israelite to be sold into service to repay a debt. And then they would have to be set free every seventh year, a year of jubilee, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12. So neither of these two practices that Nehemiah and the people are wrestling with is quote-unquote wrong, per se. But in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 43, God commands his people, do not charge your brother interest on a loan in the family of God. And later on in Leviticus 25, that if your brother is financially forced into service, to treat them as a hired hand, not as a slave, because here's the key phrase in Leviticus 25, because the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. Why does God tack that on at the end? So here's the, 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 the issue with this financial stuff. God has freed the Israelites from slavery and death in Egypt by paying a redemption price. Do you remember this story in Exodus? A redemption price, the blood of a lamb as a substitute sacrifice during the Passover. Pointing to, we know this, Jesus, right? Who's not just a lamb of God, but the lamb of God whose blood redeems us from, the, from slavery to sin and death forever. But here's the point of Leviticus 25. That we are to treat the poor and the enslaved as God redeemed you, Israel, when you were poor and enslaved in Egypt. So that's the point when it comes to how to handle this death stuff uh, for, for the, the people of Judah at that time. And what we see, here's how, let's tie it back to the passage, Nehemiah has done just that, just as uh, God redeemed them when they were poor and enslaved in Egypt to treat the poor and enslaved in your current circumstances likewise. Verse 8, he calls an assembly for all people, rich and poor, leaders and workers, and he tells them, you know what, when me and my crew, when we came to Jerusalem, we spent a lot of time and money buying back our Jewish brothers who were sold into slavery to the neighboring nations. But you, you're selling our brothers who owe you back into servitude so that we have to end up buying them back again. We're paying double for these guys. But that's not the point. Here's the key word. You see in that, in verse 8, buy back. We had to buy back our brothers. We bought them back. That word is literally the word in the Old Testament for redeem. What it means is when you buy something back, you are paying someone else's debt, something that they could not afford, and getting them out of debt, you're buying them back. And so putting the pieces together, this is what's being said in this passage. Because we love and serve and worship and remember a God who has redeemed Israel out of slavery, sin, and death, then we also, Nehemiah says, 
We also were practicing redeeming our brothers. But you have not done that. People of influence and affluence, have you forgotten that you too are redeemed by God? So how do the people respond? They're silent. They stand there silent. They're convicted. Verse 9, Nehemiah continues, you know that this is not right. You know that holding your brothers in debt and slavery is sin. And so as the people of God walk in the fear of God, in the worship of the God who redeems. Otherwise, it reflects poorly on God to the nations and our enemies. And part of his point is that how can those who are not followers of God, who are of those neighboring nations, who are currently enemies of the cross, how can they ever see the goodness, the forgiveness, the grace of a God who redeems and sets people free if his people are delivering the opposite message? Make sense? <clears throat> so what is the antidote to self-serving sinfulness that we experience during our stressful situations? The big idea of this whole passage this morning is that the people of God live out the redemption of God with one another for the world to see. That's it. That's what this whole passage is about. That as God redeemed Israel, that his follower Nehemiah also redeems his brothers, and so we need to remember how God has forgiven our debt, our sin. And he's paid this great redemption price for us through Jesus on a cross. And so I submit to you, there are times that you and I, when we're in a stressful situation, when we have troubles and, and uh, difficulties, when we can't see past our own pain, right? We get so mad or so hurt, all we can focus on is our, how we're feeling. And we can't see past our pain, and we can't see the pain of other people, at school or at work or at church or at home, and we can't feel compassion and grace for their heartache or their mistakes, I submit to you that the problem, our problem, our issue, is one of identity. That you and I have forgotten who we are in Christ. You are redeemed. You are free children of God. That if we tend to treat others selfishly and sinfully when we're under stressful situations, when you are holding your brother or your sister or your spouse in Christ in debt, financially or emotionally, then it's probably because you and I are living and thinking as if we are still slaves. Slaves to our sin, to our suffering, to Satan, that I have to pay, so others should too. Because enslaved people enslave other people. But Redeemed people can redeem other people. And so this morning, I want you to start off by reflecting on the redemption you have in Christ. That you have a God in heaven, a Father in heaven who loves you so much. He paid all of your debt. He frees you from sin and death. He gives you life that's abundant and everlasting. I want you to think about how that life you experience with God is like how he has paid for you, his resources that bless you, his word that guides you, his grace that forgives you, his mercy that preserves you even through the toughest times, and his eternal arms that await you at the end of your life. When we are dwelling and living in the grace of being redeemed people of God, how does that change how we treat and see others who owe us in the body of Christ? Now, what does living out God's redemption with others look like in a practical sense? 
It's easy to talk about it, but what does it actually look like? Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise, so may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they promised. <coughs> Excuse me. So in verse 10, I love this. This is why I appreciate our brother Nehemiah so much. He is humble and honest. Look, guys, we also lent money and food to people. I'm guilty of charging others' interest my own brothers in the family of God, uh, I want to give that up. I want to set a better example, a godly example. Verse 11, I challenge you, family of God, to do likewise, to give back all of the foreclosed businesses and homes that you've taken for, from our poor brothers, to uh, return all of that interest that you have charged them. And to their credit, in verse 12, the people show this godly repentance. <coughs> Excuse me. We'll do it. We'll restore all of it. No hidden fees, no fine print, no strings attached. We repent and we restore everything back. And so what Nehemiah does is he has these, the priests of, of God come to officiate a very solemn vow before the Lord because the issue here is not just about finances. It's about holiness. And the promise isn't to Nehemiah, it's with God. So in verse 13, after they make this solemn vow, uh, Nehemiah issues a final warning with this symbolic gesture. It means nothing to you, but it's kind of a, a Jewish uh, cultural thing. He, uh, in, in these heavy robes that people wear, uh, there were folds that would act as pockets. You'd keep your coins and stuff like that. He, shook, he shakes out all the pockets of his robes till they're empty and says, if you break your vow before God, if you continue shaking down those with less influence and affluence, may God shake you out of your home and your income and your outcome because this isn't just an issue between people in the family of God. This is an issue of sin and of holiness with God. Bottom line, practically, this passage challenges you and I to honor God by releasing struggling people of God from debt to you. That's the next slide. Now, what it's not saying is it's not saying that people shouldn't pay back what they owe financially. That's not what it's, this passage is saying. Or if someone owes you relationally. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe they have done toxic things to you. doesn't mean that we don't set healthy and holy boundaries with that person. But I would wager that most of us who've gone through a stressful situation and are holding someone in debt, that most of us, 99% of the time, it's because we're like the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18, verse 31 to 35. In that story, He's unwilling to forgive a small debt that his fellow servant, a fellow son, a fellow sister, a fellow spouse in the family of God has incurred when our master has forgiven an incalculable debt of sin in its entirety in his life and in ours. And so 
this passage shows us, Matthew 18 I'm talking about, that he gets ended up thrown in prison at the end because his master says, how can you be so wicked? You want to throw this other guy in prison? No, you get to go. And so instead of imprisoning other people with our anger or our unforgiveness, by holding on to our selfishness, our unforgiveness, our anger, our unrealistic expectations, we put ourselves in a prison that we cannot escape. It's really hard to get out of that impoverished, entitled, enslaved mindset that we have, that the world is so, so limited, so I need to grab things for myself regardless of what happens to other people when the chips are down, right? But what we need to remember is that we're able to release people when we remember that we are redeemed people. Remember that. When you know how much you have been forgiven and released of unfair, unrealistic, un impossible expectations. God's standard of holiness is perfection. It's impossible expectations for you and I. And God releases us from that debt because he pays it. Your expectations for people, sometimes unrealistic, too high. I wonder if God might encourage you to release those too because of how he has released you. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to myself because I struggle. In fact, this past week, uh, there was a Rough, one night we had a rough time around the dinner table. Like all of our kids, they were tired, they were cranky, they were acting out. And Melissa was, you know, feeling frustrated and just kind of said, <coughs> you know what, I've had, enough, I've had a really long day. And what was my very godly, compassionate response? Everyone's had a long day. Ooh, some of you just flinched. Yeah, happy birthday, Melissa, right? And it wasn't because I was ignorant or, you know, being, you know, uh, uh, not thinking about, about her feelings. It was intentional. It was a very passive-aggressive way of me saying, I don't want to hear about your long day because I'm bitter about all the times that I'm tired and that I've had to sacrifice and that you owe me. I know. Ever do something like that? No, not you. Me neither. This must be some other guy's story. All right, so immediately what happens, right? God starts speaking to my heart. And don't you hate when that happens? Like, you know you're wrong. God starts speaking to your heart, and he brings to mind scripture immediately. Very easy scripture to remember. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. Love is what? Patient, kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, not proud, right? And then here's the part that God kind of sucker punched me and really stung me in the heart. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not good. It keeps no record of wrong. Ooh, sick burn, Lord. <laughs> it burns. That last part really stung. Because I know that I love to keep a record. I don't know about you, but I hold grudges. I hold debts. You know, with other people, I am so, I can, it's easy for me to treat other people graciously, but people in my own home, I keep, I hold grudges and I hold debts. You see, it's not stress that was causing me to become self-interested at the expense of my wife. All that stress does is reveal my self-interest, right? And so I had to climb those stairs as God kind of pierced my heart, <laughs> hat in hand, metaphorically speaking, and confess, honey, I'm sorry, I made it about me instead of you, right? Self-interest. And I'm sorry for being a jerk, releasing her from my grudge and my debt. You know, some of you are thinking, Josh, that's, small beans. You don't know the kind of grudges and debts that are owed in my household. And I know, I know that many of you are facing much more real pain, 
much more hurtful situations. But do we not have a God in heaven who has forgiven all your debts, no matter how big the sin and the hurt in your life, whose hands are bigger to pour in grace and forgiveness and freedom for you? And so I want to ask you, in your difficulties and disagreements and duress, what have you taken from someone financially, maybe forgiveness, affection, acceptance, dignity, that you need to return, to release, to redeem today? When we're in a season of stress and struggle, do you know that you are redeemed? That if you trust and follow Jesus, that's who you truly are. The God of second chances has made you free. The debt of sin is paid. He's bought you at a great price through the blood of Jesus, but not to make you a slave. No, you're not his slave. You are his son. Even the ladies, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29 says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, but that you are all sons because in the ancient Near East culture, only sons receive all the rights and privileges and inheritance from their father. So ladies, even you, are treated as sons by the living God. And so we don't serve God because we have to, but because we get to, because we love our good Father who gives us all good things and sets us free. Do you know that you're redeemed? Secondly, when you're in situations of stress and struggle, do you live like you're redeemed? Specifically, how are you treating others who owe you in the family of Christ? That if you're still holding someone in debt, Christian brother or sister, financially, personally, relationally, continuously, in ways that they can never fully repay you. They're forever in debt. They're forever enslaved. They're forever imprisoned to you. And it's probably because you're still thinking like a slave. A slave to your sin, suffering, Satan, and death. Because like I said, enslaved people, enslaved people. But in Christ, redeemed people release people. And so perhaps today is your day. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? God, our Father, thank you for the beauty of this word. It's so funny. Nehemiah, sometimes when we read it at first, it just seems like a building project, <laughs> as if we're just trying to preach through uh, a building campaign. But it's not what's happening. You're teaching us about restoration, your restoration, what the gospel can do to set us free from the burdens and the difficulties and the pain of our lives to restore not just us, but the people around us, our families and our communities. And this morning we ask, would you make it personal? Every one of us at one point or another suffers from a spiritual autoimmune disease where we are attacking and holding in debt and in prison a brother, a sister, a spouse in Christ. Help us, God. Yes, people may have hurt us. Yes, people may owe us. But help us not to focus on others. Help us to see the sinfulness and the self-interest where I've stopped caring about others and what, what they experience. Help us to remember what it means to be redeemed people in Jesus. May it free up our hearts and our minds and our hands. Help us to think of that one person that we need to release today, that we might be the gospel too, to give people what they need, 
grace, forgiveness, redemption instead of what we think they deserve. In Jesus' name.